after the past 40 years of this practice, people sometimes ask me, well, after all this time, what is your practice now? What do, what do you do? <laughs> and um, that forces me to think about it. And uh, I realize what has become more and more fascinating to me is uh, the change that has taken place. Because when I first came onto a path, my goal and my hope and my expectation was to be saved. I really literally, I, you know, it's a kind of a naivete. You had it too. It, it's, it's like this hand is going to come down out of the sky and pick me up. And if anyone had asked me what I wanted to be saved from, I would have said my life. No. It's just no fun. And I, I want out of it. And that was the, the lay of the land at that time. And you would think that after all this time, my practice would be... Uh, learning to be in bliss and uh, how to negotiate the, the uh, shoals of extreme happiness. <laughs> well, actually, happiness is difficult. In some ways, the work really begins when happiness comes into your life. But the truth is that what fascinates me most these days is uh, observing el yo. You remember the other night I spoke about that I don't like that word the ego so much, but uh, the me seems very descriptive to me, and it, it kind of makes it chewable, you know, can get a hold of it. And in Spanish, el yo is the me, so what has been interesting to me more and more is learning about him. In my case, it's a him. And uh, studying Elio in depth. I think it was the, the old Zen master Dojin who said, the study of the Dharma, practicing the Dharma, is the study of the self. And when you study the self, you lose the self. And when you lose the self, that is enlightenment. And it, it has seemed to me quite natural to study the self because <laughs> it becomes clearer and clearer that that's what we are in the ordinary living, day to day, we're all Elios. It's a room full of Elios. <laughs> Hi. No. It's a big club, actually. I love especially retreats, and uh, I'm so grateful to uh, Jack and Joseph and the people that I spoke of earlier today because when I came into uh, contact with this teaching, the Dharma, what uh, 
came to me, the gift was the fact that they had these long retreats. And I was in love with meditation. I, 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 you're probably going to hate me for this, but I have always liked meditation from the very first time. It's never been a difficult for me at all. <laughs> you do, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the retreats that they put on were a, a wonderful opportunity to sit in meditation for long periods of time. And, and I used them as much as possible. A lot of things happened, you know, experiences of learning about compassion and learning about working with pain and uh, seeing how much the teachings of the Buddha were very practical lessons about living life, not some kind of religion at all. Very usable teachings. And that was all quite valuable. But the most valuable part of the retreat has always been the silence. I really love silence. And these days, uh, even though my neighbor down there plays ranchero music at the top of his boombox, and uh, the cars all lack mufflers, and uh, the dogs bark constantly. Even so, that's true. Where I live, there is lots of silence in back of all of that, and I get to tune into it all day long. The Buddha frequently advised people to seek solitude and silence. Solitude and silence. The reason, I think, the silence, well, there are many reasons. I mean, there, it's restful, for one thing. It's a break from the ordinary uh, exhaustion of, of relating to people and, and uh, talking. But uh, the biggest gift that silence brings to me is that it uh, casts the activities of Elio in vivid color. Huh? You've noticed. Thoughts, thinking, although totally neutral in essence, always seem to be directed to the Elio at him. And they are uh, the vehicle that the, uh, the me uses. In, in establishing its existence, thinking, emotion. And in the silence, it becomes much, much easier to pay attention to the activities of the me. And there are things that I've noticed about this, this me business. The me is... Uh, a part of mind, but not the whole story. There was a time when I began to realize in my practice that being a human being, there were there were two aspects to that: the life of El Yo, the me, which is kind of a, a a subset of mind, who thinks he's the whole thing, and then gets into all kinds of trouble. 
And then the other aspect of mind, which is really the expansion, the context in which the me makes its living, the openness, or uh, the other night I called it the, the emptiness, or the wakefulness, or you could say the, the aliveness, because it is all that. At the same time, it really is empty. And it's clear that the, the self, the little self, the, the me, appears in the emptiness. Now, it has this, this me business, it has a quality that makes it always foreground in our uh, ordinary life. If, if we're not in silence and really examining carefully, it, as I said the other night, it's very, it's very noisy. And uh, it likes to uh, talk all the time, you may have noticed. And it itself is split into two. Um, Fritz, my, my first teacher, used to call that the top dog and the underdog. And those two are arguing all the time with each other inside. So the top dog is saying, oh, you know, uh, you're going to have to really work a lot harder at this meditation stuff because you're not very good at it. And the underdog is saying, yeah, but I'm trying, and tomorrow I'll do better, and give me a break. And then the top dog is saying, yeah, you're always whining. Shut up. You know? and, and the underdog is saying, but I've been in therapy, and I, I really, I've done all those things. And, and the top dog is saying, yeah, yeah, but I don't think there's hope for you because you know, that's going on all the time in there, top dog and underdog. And those two guys are actually melded together in a way, and they are the, uh, the totality of that is the me. The me argues with itself. Now, the me also is very powerful because it argues with everything else, too. <laughs> everything. Yeah. It takes, it has the habit of taking either a superior position, which means how it is with you and everybody else, you know. Uh, mostly when it compares, it is either inferior or superior, depending on what you ate for breakfast that day and how much sleep that you had the night before and if, if anybody's being nice to you or not. So it bounces back and forth between inferior and superior. The, the little me, the me is always in relationship to other. And that means that every moment it compares this moment to some other moment. Now this time is pretty good, but you know, I've felt better other times. And this retreat is really good, but maybe it'll be another one that'll be better. And what happens in that comparing one moment to another is that this moment gets overlooked in the constant conjecturing. The, this, uh, the me is pretty much adversarial, as I said the other night, to itself and to the environment and to others. And because that comes out of the fact that the me is always afraid. 
get so sad when I say that, you know. The me is always afraid. Varying from panic attacks to mild, ongoing, daily anxiety. There's always this kind of sense of danger. And and that's because, in reality, it doesn't have any basis for its existence. It doesn't have anything that says, I'm here for sure. Everything is always up to grabs because it's all impermanent. The me lives in a, uh, a constantly moving stream and it's looking always for a piece of driftwood to hang on to or trying to claw its way to the shore to hang on to the grass. The me is always wanting a little stability because everything is changing all the time. There isn't any, really. But in order to create the uh, illusion of stability, it solidifies environment. It's always making, trying to make things real. It does that by uh, investing projections into uh, the experience and therefore winds up living in a whole sea of projections you know, um, with opinion and judgment about everything that it comes in contact with. I like and I don't like. This is good and it isn't good. That goes on constantly. So because of this atmosphere of fear, the me is always looking around for danger, needs to protect itself all the time from imagined and real threats. And in truth, it is in danger all the time, as I say, because there isn't anything solid or permanent at all that it can touch. Everybody's dying. You know, everything is disappearing. It uh, takes up all the, the space and it takes up all the sound with its yammering. And, and at the same time, it's very it's fascinating because the me always is talking about me. It's always concerned with self. And of course, that's what we're mostly interested in is ourselves. So it, 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 even though it's frequently unpleasant, it's always about the main attraction, my relationship to my work, my relationship to the Dharma, my relationship to my family, my relationship to language, the IRS, you know, the, the immigration office in Mexico, always in relationship to everything and needing to find safety in that fluid situation. So it, it projects onto others what it is that it doesn't like about itself. That way it begins to feel a little safe, you know. The darkness of the me is easily put upon Iraq or Osama bin Laden or anybody who steps forward as a volunteer becomes the bad guy. Sometimes projects the good guy also, but then when that happens it tends to worship the good guy and, and venerate and then that 
creates a, a terrible inequality in relationships. So the, the me is always, always lonely. Sense of being here alone and helplessly out of control, actually. So to study that, of course, can be a, a painful exercise and frequently is, but in the, the context of the silence, it uh, becomes interesting. I think you've probably found that so, that you've watched your me in action these last few, day, few days, and every once in a while you say to yourself, wow, look at that. I can't believe that's happening, or that I said that, or I thought that. The thoughts that go, as I said the other night, the thoughts that go through me's awareness are pretty much uh, self-referential, but pretty much random, too, and can be terribly frightening because it likes to scare itself even more. Because when it's scared, it feels like it exists. Fear is, you can, you know, it's right in your face. It's here and now. If it starts to get a little bit more relaxed, then that is very scary because the boundaries start fading away and it doesn't know what it is. And it can get very panicky as the practice goes on or as uh, just in daily life, if you start to have things going pretty well, what happens? Pretty soon, you know, the other shoe is going to fall any minute and you're going to be in trouble. You can't enjoy happiness very long from the point of view of the me. But you got to love him. <laughs> really. So brave the me is. Keeps, keeps doing it in the face of death keeps doing it in the face of disappointment and loss and suffering, just keeps plugging along. you got to love him. It's in some ways our closest companion is the thought of the me, the activities of the me. And learning to appreciate oneself at that level is certainly part of the practice. In this getting to know oneself intimately, there comes a time when what is the sea, the ocean, that the me swims in starts to come into visible experience. The more that you are studying who you are, what Dojin meant by that is the more the, the me disappears, the more you study it, because the big, the, the, the big picture starts to emerge. And there comes into your, your life experience moments of awakening, moments of what is beyond the me. You see, now, Elio is coyote. Elio is a trickster. And the more you study the, the trickster and see that uh, what he or she is saying is not the 
place to find wisdom, but is the place to be careful, the more you also see that there is uh, 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 something more than the trickster, the coyote. You, with concentration in the practice, you start traveling in the fields beyond where coyote plays. And then every once in a while, there is this sense of expansiveness that comes. And in that quiet, and it is always quiet, in that silence of that openness lives love, lives compassion, and lives in wisdom, real wisdom. Through the me, we, we gain knowledge, but wisdom only comes in the silence. So I've come to really value it very much because it reveals truth. Silence does. It's like it's a little like uh, this comment from uh, uh, this Iranian woman, Anasha Ansari, who spent 25 million bucks to go into outer space, I think in the Russian spaceship. And her comment from out there was, if people can see Earth from up here, see it without those borders, see it without any differences in race or religions, they would have a completely different perspective because when you see it from that angle, you cannot think of your home or your country. All you can see is one earth. I look at silence as being the silence of outer space. All of that vastness that Wes was speaking about last night, where the bird skeletons live. <laughs> all of that wonderful mystery makes our life on earth and particularly the life of the me seem so tiny and so really silly and and kind of pitiful and you that's when you start having compassion for the me sitting in the silence is gives a view of it in the way that being in that spaceship gives a, a view of Earth. And the inner boundaries, the inner space opens up. And the vastness is sometimes terrifying. And then as soon as it becomes terrifying, the me steps in again and takes control. But then if you stay with the practice, the vastness returns eventually again. And it's like sticking your foot in ice water, you know, a little bit at a time, one toe at a time. You just, you can only tolerate a little bit. But the more that happens, the more you get used to it. And pretty soon there starts to be a, 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 an intimacy, an intimacy between the me and the openness. They start to work together very smoothly and life becomes a whole lot more full of love 
because it's in that openness that love comes out of that openness. Everything comes out of the silence of that openness. Compassion, you know, under deep understanding, the ability, the 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 ability or the the gift of, of being able to be with people uh, in a way that's generous and open-hearted comes out of that kind of silent practice. I want to tell you how that appreciation for what I'm speaking about first began for me. When I was a, a small child, the, my life circumstance was, although it was kind of a country bumpkin, Ozzy and Harriet looking existence, ordinary people, unsophisticated and uneducated people, there was a, a dark side to it that was pretty black. And my early childhood was incredibly full of um, uh, danger and abuse. And uh, one time when I was 12, I w was feeling overwhelmed by the horrors in my family and what was happening to me. And um, I don't want to get into all that particularly, but um, th there's a film was made about it and there's copies of the film on the table out there. So you can, if you're interested, you can find out about that. But I escaped from that family scene one day. Uh, it was actually an Easter Sunday and, and climbed a hill near my home, sat down to finally be alone from all of them and uh, to have some peace and solitude. It was the first time I'd ever sought that. And um, sitting there on the top of this hill, springtime, uh, wildflowers all around, very idyllic. In my little village down below, I could sit up there and see everybody's houses, and I knew who lived in all the houses and what their lives were like, really small village life. All of a sudden, the openness spontaneously happened, and in a kind of a rapture that only you know, like a 12-year-old could never understand, a kind of a rapture, the message came in somehow to me very clearly that what, I, what was necessary was that I had to open to everything that came my way in life without pushing anything away, that that's, that was the clue, that was the key. I understood that deeply, and it applied to the abuse that was happening and the people who were hurting me, etc., open to all of it. Lasted quite a while, and it was the first touch of real happiness that had ever come my way. I, I think, I don't know how long I was there, and then I got up to walk back home, and as I was walking home, I remember very vividly El Yo come, coming in, this is what happens, and saying, you just made that up. It isn't true. You made that up in your mind. Forget about it. And I did forget about it. And I didn't remember it for years and years after years and years had gone by. But what came out of that was 
shortly afterwards, a, a kind of a miraculous event. The family, our family doctor, who was a surgeon, and who had a small hospital in, in the next town, about, I guess, 5,000 people, three to 5,000 people. There was a little hospital, and he had a, an operating suite there, and he, was, he did all of the surgery, gallbladders, hernias, um, a lot of appendectomies, um, hemorrhoid surgery, everything but major, major um, resections were, were done there. He asked me to come and be with him in the, in the surgical suite. Now, I was so small that I couldn't, I, and I did that, and he taught me how to scrub and put on the gowns, and, but I was so tiny that I couldn't see what he was doing. So they fixed a big a, a box, a wooden box for me to stand on. And I'd climb up on this box and, and stand there. I couldn't touch anything, but look over uh, the operating field. And he would do the surgery and telling me what he was doing all, all along. And I became fascinated with this because I was, I thought, now I'm really learning about life because we're going to look inside here and see what it's like. I'll never forget the first time uh, he made a large decision and opened the abdomen, and I looked in there. Do you know the liver is the most beautiful purple? And the bowels have a silvery sheen, and they reflect light. And the spleen is kind of this rich, Merlot color. You know. The stomach is kind of a strange gray. It looks like uh, it needs a little blood or something. <laughs> and I, I would stand there while he's telling me what he's doing and showing me the anatomy, fascinated with the colors and the movements of the organs. And I would think, that's life. That's what it is, really, all of that. This went on for years, and so finally, by the time I finished my college, because it would always, when I'd come home from vacations in college, I would go to the operating room every chance that I had. Finally, by the time I got into medical school, which was by that time preordained, there wasn't anything else that was going to happen, I could take out an appendix by myself, you know. I knew how to repair a hernia, and I was, you know, 20, what, when I got into medical school, 21 years old. It was amazing. I would tell people that I was having these experiences, and nobody believed me. They, they finally believed me when some of my neighbors in that little town came in. One lady came in to get her gallbladder removed, and there I was, standing there. And she went home and told everybody, it's true. He's, he's in the surgical suite. And then everybody started saying to me that they were going to wait to get sick until I got back. And when I was a doctor and I would come back and heal everybody. So that, that whole idea of being fully alive, seeing the insides of everything, and being a healer all came together very, very vividly for me. And the next step was 
through, all through medical school, learning more and more about the body, but from the point of view of the physical body and how it works and the, and the miracle of it and the intricacy of all the systems working together. It was fascinating to me. I loved it. Gross anatomy was a little difficult, though, because my cadaver wasn't embalmed very well, and it started to really decay quite quickly. And by the time I had been with him for a couple of weeks, I had to wear a mask, and I couldn't breathe because the smell was so bad. And I would come home with my clothes permeated with this. This is quite pleasant. With the, with, <laughs> with the smell of rotting corpse. But it, even that didn't deter me from being fascinated with how this all is, how it all works together. I'm, I'm having right now one of those moments of opening. Everything just stopped. We call them senior moments. <laughs> I think they're wonderful. <laughs> I really do. Oh, it's like there's nothing. <laughs> You're here, right? Ah, El Yo, we'll be back in a minute, I'm sure. <laughs> That, uh, that experience from my mentor when, that started when I was a young boy helped me a lot get through medical school because I, I worked my way through medical school the last couple of years by being in sur a surgical technician in a Harlem hospital. Uh, I was on call at night, and there would be a lot of gunshot wounds and stabbings and so forth, so forth and emergency surgery, and I was the surgical nurse on call, and I would, I, I don't know how I lived through this, I would be in the hospital all night long, often, and then have to go home about five or six in the morning, take a nap, and then go to school for the rest of the day. And then on top of that, we had two babies. So, you know, how does one do that? I don't know. But we survived it. The... Uh, Next step was in, in, the, in being interested in learning the secret of life was that it was, became clear after medical school that I, I didn't know about the mind and that uh, that had to be the next contribution to the, my training. And so I decided, uh, well, I didn't really decide the only residency that was available to me that was in uh, psychiatry because uh, uh, with, with two children, uh, a civilian residency wouldn't pay enough to support the family. So I went to enlist in the Army after the internship, and uh, they didn't know what to do with me. No, uh, They had never had a doctor come to the enlistment station and want to join up. So they told me to come back the next week, and, and uh, I came back the next week, and they said, yeah, you can, you can go in as a captain, and uh, the pay is pretty good, and you, you get all the benefits. 
but uh, the only residencies that are open are in psychiatry. And uh, one is in uh, Walter Reed in Washington, and one is in San Francisco. Well, I wanted to go to San Francisco. So I said, if I can go to San Francisco, I'll take it. And that's how I became a psychiatrist. <laughs> the openness, new. <laughs> it just wasn't any other way, you know. So I, I went uh, through all my training, and I came out of the Army a major. And uh, I had a lot of adventures being, uh, I, I became a, uh, the head of a huge department of neuropsychiatry and mental hygiene at a major hospital at the age of 29. And I uh, had a whole lot of uh, staff under me. And um, I shouldn't tell you, well, anyway. I, I will. Uh, more and more fascinated with the mind, psychiatry, and I came on a, on a leave to San Francisco in 1964 and uh, ran across some LSD from Ken Kesey, who was at the VA hospital and uh, was experimenting with LSD, took LSD. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> oh, talk about expansion. <laughs> Phew. So, you know, it was, it was still legal then. So I got a bunch of it, and I took it back with me to Kentucky, where I was, to Fort Knox, where I was stationed. <laughs> And there were certain people on my staff who needed it. <laughs> so I started turning my, my uh, social workers on and, uh, to acid. And I loved it so much that I decided that the commanding general should get the benefit of my, <laughs> my new wisdom. I don't know how I survived. So I, I did a formal briefing of the commanding general and about 15 full colonels one day after I had taken a little bit of it. <laughs> Major Hall on dope. And I, I have no idea to this day what I said to them. So came back to San Francisco, and they gave me a medal. I had a medal. <laughs> Openness pays. So uh, I was uh, assistant chief of psychiatry at, at Letterman Hospital when it was here. And uh, having acid flashbacks, and, and wrote a book of poetry that started selling big time in the Haight Ashbury that summer of love. And the title of it was Flapping Your Arms Can Be Flying. <laughs> 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 
And uh, it was reviewed in the Rolling Stone by Jan Venner. Uh, Ken Kesey wrote the blurb on the cover. And uh, uh, the poster, the, the cover of it was a poster all over Haight-Ashbury on the telephone poles. And it was a big deal. So I took some copies of it to, down to Esalen Institute. And uh, in that way, I ran across my next adventure in openness. And it was uh, my meeting with Fritz Perls, who was the resident wise man, guru, uh, notorious, um, outrageous, crazy wisdom freak, who at that time, he was 70. And uh, I was sitting in the dining room of the Esalen Lodge with a friend. I had brought, the reason I was there is I had taken this book of poetry down there to sell it. And I was selling it all over the place. And uh, I was sitting in the dining room and I saw him sitting across the room. And uh, he was sitting in front of a window and the light was coming in back of him and his hair was all wild. He had this kind of Einsteinian look, big, long white beard, um, always uh, in, a, in a cloud of cigarette smoke. He smoked constantly. And these huge, huge, luminous blue eyes. And, and my friend said, he's staring at you. What's going on? And he was. He was st- and I looked up, and he got up, Fritz, and he walked across the room, and he stopped at my chair and didn't say anything and I what went through my mind was you should be polite to your elders and I stood up and and the next thing I knew I I fell into those luminous eyes I I I wake up and he's hugging me we're in this deep embrace and everybody in the dining room is watching this happen and the first words he says to me is I want you to come and work with me that's how I met him. And I said, okay, <laughs> I will. And how I got out of the army was a, was a whole other thing. Uh, th- this, this could go on and on, but the, the, the Vietnam War was happening, and I was frozen beyond my, t- my required time. And they were threatening to send me to Vietnam and wouldn't let me out. Uh, but when he said, come and work with me, and I decided that, of course, I had to get out of the Army. So I uh, wrote to a, a friend of mine who had become a general in the Surgeon General's office and who knew Fritz Perls about him, and I said, I have to get out. I ha- you have to help me. He says, I, the thing to do is go to the hospital commander and tell them you're going to uh, call a press conference and you're going to go to the newspapers that they're holding you against your will and illegally because there's no war declared. And I was six months at, past my discharge date. So I thought, well, and I did that, and the hospital commander said, we'll look into it. You know, The next day, I, I was discharged from the Army. <laughs> and uh, my, my, my family and I moved to a log cabin in the woods in Big Sur, so I could be with Fritz. 
had no income, no way of surviving that we knew about. But there was something about that needing to be open to that experience. It was, we, we had to do that. We were there a couple of years. From him, oh boy, it was my first experience in total devotion to a teacher. I would have done anything that he said. And so I just osmosed him. He never told me much of anything except to pay attention to and go with the obvious. But he taught me by his being and in our relationship the value of full tilt living, the value of, of not holding back, letting El Yo out to play, not judging oneself so much just simply doing it all with awareness. And uh, that started uh, a movement within me toward uh, becoming fascinated with awakening. This was before Buddhism. That It dawned on me that it was possible to be that way all the time. Ida Rolf came along. She was a friend of his, and she was. This was before she became a legend. She was this little old lady with a hibiscus flower in her hair who did terrible things to people <laughs> down in the baths and made people scream and cry. And uh, if they team, they teamed up and double teamed me. They decided that it was going to take two of them to break through because I was really a hard nut. Uh, and they did that, and, and uh, I wound up uh, being the first person trained in rolfing in the United States from Ida. The next thing that, that occurred out of that was really a big turning point because in the, uh, during my training with her uh, on the fourth hour, she was working deeply in the inside of my legs with her elbows. <laughs> it hurt a little. And uh, <laughs> it was very painful what she did. It was, you know, it's, it, rolfing is not so painful nowadays, but it was really, I mean, at one point I said, Jesus Christ. And she said, no, I'm just this handmaiden. <laughs> And she believed it, too. She was wonderful. But what happened was um, I started uh, seeing ropes, and um, uh, I was nude, and I was four years old, and I was uh, uh, tied up, and I was in a dark place, and uh, I was uh, face down on a dirt floor, and my face was being pushed into the, the dirt, and I could feel the coolness of the earth, and something horrible was happening. And then the next flash was that I was there alone, and I was uh, humiliated, and I was trying to uh, put my clothes back on, and I couldn't, uh, I was too small. I had both legs in the, the pant hole of my underwear, and I kept falling down. I couldn't uh, walk. And... Uh, it, it, uh, there, there came a moment of incredible 
despair and weeping. That's very vivid in my, my memory. And then the next thing was that I heard my name, Bobby, being called. And uh, there was a face, and there was one window in this room high up, and there was a face in the window, and it was the face of my father's best friend. There had been a certain... I, I called home and, and asked my mother at that point, after that session with Ida, what happened when I was four. And I told her that I had been tied up and in, in this dark room, and she said, oh, why do you want to remember all that? And uh, the more I asked questions, the story that came was that I had been kidnapped at the age of four, abducted off the street, and, and missing overnight for two days and a night. And um, in truth, that had happened. They never found out who had taken me, but they found me alone in just exactly the circumstances that I had remembered. Well, that, for El Yo, that was like, oh, now I understand why I'm afraid all the time. Now I understand why people are so threatening to me. And it became an opportunity to start to heal that wound. But I needed the solitude and the silence that I'm speaking of because that was going to be deep, deep, deep work. So when after the time in, in Big Sur, the next step uh, was that... Uh, I needed I needed another teacher. There was a I was very depressed. I needed an, some guidance, and just at that time, I came into contact through another kind of magical way with a, a spiritual master in India, and uh, ended up there with him for about half a year, four or five months, and uh, learned to meditate. Learned about the silence and the spaciousness that illuminates the, 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 the me and brings about the possibility of living in openness. Started meditating a lot of hours every day. Took to meditation immediately. Loved it. It was uh, it was like coming home. It was finally finding a resting place. And that was the practice of inner sound, that I still love a lot. And then led to meeting Jack and Joseph, and coming into contact with Buddhism. When I first came into contact with Buddhism. I was surprised to discover that I hadn't invented it, that somebody else had known about it long before me. But the opportunity to sit in silence in, in long retreats was really, really wonderful. Adyashanti, you must become more interested in the unknown than in that which is known. Otherwise, you will remain enslaved 
by the very narrow and distorted perspective of conceptual thinking. You must go so deeply into the unknown that you're no longer referencing thought to tell you who and what you are. Only then will thought be capable of reflecting that which is true rather than falsely masquerading as truth. We need silence and solitude to go into the unknown. We need opportunities like we have had for this past week to rest in the quiet and sharpen the focus of attention and expand awareness. I want to share with you a poem about silence. I don't even know how this poem came into my life. A lot of people give me poetry. And one day... uh, in Toto Santos, this guy walked up to me and said, handed me this paper, and it said, Robert, do you know this poem? Thank you. Bertrand Vanderville. I, I don't know who he was. I never saw him again. And there's no name on this poem. So as far as I'm concerned, it's anonymous. And I didn't take to it right away. I, I, I didn't really get it. And only in the last couple of days have I started to appreciate this. So I want to share it with you as a way of finishing this rambling story. Silence vibrating is creation. Silence flowing is love. Silence shared is friendship. Silence seen is infinity. Silence heard is adorable. Silence muted is fear. Silence expressed is beauty. Silence maintained is strength. Silence omitted is suffering. Silence deified is bliss. Silence allowed is rest. Silence recorded is scripture. Silence preserved is our tradition. Silence given is initiating. Silence received is joy. Silence perceived is knowledge. Silence stabilized is fulfillment. Silence illuminated is vision. Silence touched is spiritual growth. Silence shaped is form. Embraced by silence is grace. Silence treasured is endless readiness. Silence heard answering is knowing. Silence breathing is recognition. Silence remembered is home. Silence embraced is limitless possibilities. Silence surrendered to is guidance.
Silence completed is oneness. Silence to begin is freedom. Silence alone is. It's enough. So, seek solitude and silence at all costs, because out of that comes everything. Silence is the matrix out of which all of our experience arrives. Value it, treasure it, make sure you have it in your life. That's my advice from this retreat. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.